In his time as leader of the church and governor of the Utah Territory, Brigham Young received thousands of letters, and it was not uncommon for him to receive anonymous letters, either unsigned or sent under a pseudonym or a mysterious set of initials. Some of these letters asked him to fix problems, some were death threats, and some were unsolicited pieces of advice or warnings. These anonymous letters give us an unexpected look into life in Pioneer, Utah, and we'll explore some of them today. I'm Nate Olson, and this is Adventures in Mormon History. Some of the anonymous letters Brigham Young received were complaints, or asked him to fix problems. And one such letter came on the 3rd of September, 1856. The writer, going by the pseudonym Justicia, wanted Brigham Young to replace Andrew Carrington as editor of the Deseret News. Here's what he wrote. Beloved President Young, There is great dissatisfaction among the reading and thinking portion of the saints about the Deseret News. I have looked with anxiety and deep interest for some weeks past to see some account of our late election in its columns. But to my chagrin and disappointment, no notice was taken, not a word to inform the public or the world at large. It is surely, beloved President, a a contradiction in terms, or in other words, a misnomer to call it the Deseret News, for it contains no news hardly, either local or foreign. Your humble brother in the kingdom, Justicia. In addition to unsolicited, helpful advice, Brigham Young also received a fair amount of death threats. One such letter arrived in 1853. Salt Lake Valley, Mr. Brigham Young, you damned infernal impostor, I send you a present of what you will shortly feel playing near your corrupted heart. Your day is over, nearly, and I will solemnly advise you to make your peace with the God you have been disabusing. Vengeance is mine, and I will repay. You know not who I am, but the day is not far distant when you will know to your sorrow. Be on your guard, lest I should sing the sound of death in your ear when you least expect. You know not but what I am in your presence daily. Then I say, be on the watch. I shall never strike you in the back, but face you in the crowd, or on the highway, or in the unholy sanctuary. Mark these words. Vengeance is mine, and I will repay. Yours in haste, A.B.C. Now, whoever wrote this death threat apparently wanted to put Brigham Young in continual apprehension that any one of his associates might suddenly murder him. But it's doubtful that he succeeded, if for no other reason than because somebody who uses phrases like sing the sound of death in your ear is going to stand out in a crowd, however hidden they may believe themselves to be. And despite how different life could be in Pioneer, Utah than it is today, some things do not seem to have changed. The anonymous letters show that some parents in Pioneer, Utah were very worried about the media that their children were exposed to. This next letter, written on the 9th of February, 1872, asks Brigham Young to stop the performance of a play in Salt Lake City called Neck and Neck.
President Brigham Young. Dear brother, in justice to our dear children, I beg of you in the name of our common humanity to arrest the terrorizing and demoralizing effects which are produced upon their young and tender minds by the performance of such plays as Neck and Neck, which is announced for tomorrow afternoon by suppressing the same. If the play of Oliver Twist was horrible to witness, the present style of plays produced at our theaters are more so. What can be imagined more pernicious in its nature for a young child to witness than to see a human being hung up by the neck? True, it may be said, it is all make-believe, yet it is no less a disgusting spectacle for our children to witness, since it bears all the appearance of a bona fide hanging. What baneful effect which may be produced upon the offspring of, of women who are about to become mothers, who witness such kind of play. The imagination is left to conjecture. There are hundreds of fine classical plays that might be produced at our temple of drama, which are more elevating in their characterization, of which are calculated to ennoble and refine the minds of all who witness their charming excellence. Very respectfully, your brother in the gospel. This letter is interesting, among other reasons, for describing Charles Dickens' Oliver Twist as something horrible to witness. Because many people in the Utah Territory, including Brigham Young, had served missions to Charles Dickens' United Kingdom, and they'd seen firsthand the crushing poverty of life in England's industrial slums. Some of them had even met Charles Dickens, as Dickens wrote about in his 1868 memoirs, The Uncommercial Traveler. What's more, a large number of people living in Utah had escaped life in the British lower classes. But this experience, both seen and lived, apparently did not make it any easier to watch plays like Oliver Twist. And the writer was especially concerned about how plays like these could affect both children and unborn babies if their mothers went to see such horrible plays. Parental concern about media and children? Some things simply do not change. Some anonymous writers tried to bring Brigham Young's attention to problems they thought he would not be aware of otherwise. One such letter, sent by Publicola on the 2nd of August, 1858, complained that missionary calls were largely being used to rid the territory of obnoxious people like lazy, drunk, and mean individuals. And while the families and neighbors were glad to be rid of these characters for a time, they were wreaking havoc in the mission field. 2nd August, 1858. Publicola. Beloved brother, there never was a time when the elders in going forth will wield a greater influence and power for good or evil than in the present momentous period. It is therefore my opinion that it requires men commensurate with the work. Men in every way capable of not only enunciating our religious tenets, but of defending the constitutional course which we have pursued. The majority of these elders, heretofore called, have been quite the opposite of this, having none of the qualifications I have named. Some of them have been sent because they were lazy and would do no work. Others, that they were drunkards and disorderly characters. And others, in consequence of their being so mean, that it was a blessing to the community to get rid of them. Indeed, this fact is so notorious that it is quite common when a man is called on a mission for the people to ask each other, huh, what has he done? Or, what meanness has he been engaged in that they are sending him off? Etc. 
The knave and the fool are frequently joined in the same character. Any fool can make a fire, but it takes a wise man to put it out. I was forcibly struck with the truth of the foregoing sentiment on hearing a few weeks ago in one of the southern settlements two of the lately returned missionaries give an account of their missions. The first had been very successful in strengthening the saints. The second had found London a hard road to travel. He had been wonderfully persecuted, had a narrow escape with his life several times, and on one occasion, when a mob was round the door of the meeting house, he preached a short sermon, viz. Saints, you have many devils round you, and you need them. Amen. After this edifying discourse, the meeting broke up in confusion. On another occasion, quote, being full of the Holy Ghost, unquote, the spirit, like the devil, is blamed for many things of which it is not guilty. He bore testimony to the truth of the work and the purity of the saints in the valleys of the mountains, and the mean devils before him would yet have to beg their bread from the Mormons. Yea, the queen and her nobles would yet be glad to get a morsel of food from this people to save their lives, and if they didn't like it, they might lap as dogs do biscuits. He boastingly made this statement before 2,000 people and seemed to glory in his shame. And yet this man was our ambassador to the nations? What opinion can the world form of us as a people if we send forth such representatives? For many years, we as a people have complained, and, and justly too, of the officials sent amongst us by Uncle Sam because of their corruption and inadequacy to fill the stations to which they were appointed by a government which we believe will soon pass away. They were too imbecile and licentious to administer laws merely that relate to time. It is a poor rule that will not work both ways. Are we still more culpable in sending forth to every nation under heaven men of no moral character or influence at home to represent us abroad? The delegates of a government which is eternal and the the administrators of laws and ordinances which not only relate to this life that now is, but of that which is to come. In the event, therefore, of missionaries being called this fall or coming spring, I would be glad to see those selected who will, in every sense of the word, be a credit to us and an honor to the cause. There are plenty of such amongst us, those who will persuade and win men to the truth and not denounce them as dogs and devils. There are many devils and dogs in this world, but few men like to be called such. I remain yours in the new and everlasting covenant, Publicola. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Adventures in Mormon History. This wraps up our first season, and we're happy to do another season. If you would like more episodes of Adventures in Mormon Histories, please give our podcast a review on iTunes or Spotify and let us know in the comments section that you would like another season. I'm Nate Olson, and this is Adventures in Mormon History.